0: Welcome to the New Books Network. And so like the little children's uh, saying, or saying to children that you are a snowflake, I mean that's really true of the personalist tradition, that each individual person, human person, creating the image of the triune God, one God, three divine persons, an eternal communion, that each individual person is unrepeatable.
1: Each person, each soul, is an entire world writes Saint Maria Faustina Kowalska in her diaries. And treating people as ends unto themselves, as priceless, as unrepeatable, is the discussion that Protestant theologian Professor Paul Louis Metzger takes up in his new book, More Than Things, a personalist ethics for a throwaway culture. When people become means to an end, like bricks in the Tower of Babel, or honored for their utility and not for their likeness to God, then madness will surely follow. We've seen it before in totalitarian regimes, and we flirt with it always, sinners that we are in this fallen world. So let's talk it over on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Adiniets, and I get to ask interesting people the interesting questions, and they share their conclusions, explaining what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Paul Lewis Metzger. He's professor of Christian theology and theology of culture at Multnomah University and Multnomah Biblical Seminary, a school that he loves for its i quoting, Christ-centered biblical spirituality, community, and its location in Portland. He's also the director of the Institute for Cultural Engagement, New Wine, New Wineskins, which he says is about having one finger in the Bible and one finger on the daily newspaper, bearing witness to Christ in our contemporary culture. Paul is married. He has two children, a daughter-in-law, one grandchild, and a dog. Paul <laughs> is the author or co-author of 10 books, including the book we're talking about today, More Than Things... A Personalist Ethics for a Throwaway Culture, which was published this year from Varsity Press. So welcome, Professor Metzger.
0: So good to be with you, Chris, and with your community. Uh, thank you for the privilege of um, this dialogue today.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Do you have any jokes or funny stories?
0: Well, uh, you know, I just, I I really enjoy Keith Richards' quips, uh, the, the guitarist from the Rolling Stones, and I love how often when he gets a chance to do some lead vocals in addition to playing the guitar he'll say you know it's it's great to be here it's great to be anywhere (laughs) so i just uh i mean i'm glad to be alive in other words and I'm, i'm thrilled to be with you today
1: Yeah, amen, amen. And I enjoyed the line you sent me about how we have to think about what kind of a world we're going to leave for Keith Richards because he's (laughs) He's a man of great longevity. (laughs) He sure is. (laughs) Uh, So who is Paul Lewis Metzger and what's it like working at a Christian university and seminary in Portland like Multnomah and the institute you direct, New Wine, New Wineskins?
0: Well, you may know this, Chris, and others in your network may know this, but Portland's motto is keep Portland weird. And I say, well, that's why I'm here. I'm trying to help people do it. And uh, Austin, Texas, I think, is the only other city with that same motto. And, you know, it's it's not part of the Bible Belt, and I mean no disregard uh, for the Bible Belt. It's just that Portland is known as being, uh, at times, either irreligious, uh, anti-religious, certainly pluralistic, etc., etc., etc. And I like being in a context where, you know, it, uh, having to really be stretched as a follower of Jesus in a world where, you know, my go-to perspectives might not be embraced, maybe be challenged. It really stretches me. And so I like being in that context. It's like uh, Wizard of Oz with uh, mm. Dorothy saying to Toto, Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. And so, you know, learning to not uh, discount in any way Orthodox Christianity, but how to articulate and live out Orthodox Christianity in a context like Portland, uh, that's really a a passion of mine. And so I've been seeking to do that for, you know, 20 some years. And uh, the book flows out of that, even with the discussion of entangled ethics, how do we operate uh, by way of faith in Christ in a world where, you know, we look through a glass dimly and how do we dialogue with people who don't share our, our views many times? So that's, that's a passion. And Portland's a great living lab for that type of, no, uh,
1: oh, that's very that's very lovely, and uh, what an opportunity to have that kind of mission field, and I'm sure great coffee and good Thai food, <laughs> thai food and all the all the rest. That's of it. exactly
0: right. Yeah, I, and Kurt I really, Cobain's Kurt Cobain's mecca is just right up the road, so you know if you like Yeah, your vomit, you know.
1: yeah I really like the show Portlandia, so that we all we all know <laughs> that uh, that mythos. Um, so, what is
0: personalism? Thank you, Chris. And uh, as as you know from your tradition, uh, John Paul II was known as a leading personalist in the 20th century. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, was also a personalist, more from the Boston School of Thought. And so personalism, while you can find it in various traditions of East and West, not just the Judeo-Christian tradition, there are snapshots of it or tenants or facets that can appear in eastern thought forms i think even with taoism confucianism buddhism and the like uh but i'm thinking today here more in terms of the christian tradition which you and i embrace and as hans Urs von bultasar talked about it you know he really thinks it's grounded in the trinitarian orthodox perspective of patristic theology and the like so that you know we worship a god who is one and also three persons in eternal community, three divine persons as the one God. And so that's core to personalism, that Trinitarian faith, uh, which we embrace. Uh, and then also if we you know reflect on tenets of personalism on the human level, uh, we have to account for the fact that we're embodied selves. Uh, we are embodied. We're not uh, disembodied creatures. We are embodied. So personalism must account for human embodiment, and all that that entails, uh, our social context, that uh, human agency, consciousness, self-consciousness, uh, uh, that each of us is an individual person in communion. So again, agency, community, all is part of that, to love God with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor as ourselves, so that the other and ourselves um, is all part of that. And then i like to reflect uh in terms of these three aspects i've been highlighting this to people you know each individual person is unfathomable in uh their identity um we cannot exhaust the person by their uses their work etc what they wear what they own each individual person is unfathomable and that relates to their dignity as inherent as well as creating the image of the triune god Uh, so unfathomable infinite mysteries is reflective of the triune god also uh that we are inviolable that even when one is violated there's still an aspect of our being that is inviolable uh victor frankl said from his concentration camp or about his concentration camp experience even when the nazis would take away everything from him they still couldn't take away his response and he could operate in a way that honored that individual dignity and his agency that he still had, in a sense, control over his response, not to react, but to respond. And so that inviolability, so unfathomability, inviolability and unrepeatability, that each individual person is unrepeatable. We're not cogs in a machine. We're not on an assembly line. And so like the little children's uh, saying saying to children that you are a snowflake. I mean, that's really true (laughs) of the personalist tradition that each individual person Human person, creating the image of the triune God, one God, three divine persons in eternal communion. That each individual person is unrepeatable. So I like to say that in different ways uh, to people when I talk yeah. about
1: personal. Here, here. Um, I forgot to ask you what is uh, your denomination.
0: Uh, I have been across the Protestant spectrum, and uh, presently now um, uh, going back into my my heritage of the Evangelical Covenant Church in in dialogue. Uh, and in pursuit of that, uh, but uh, I've, I've been across the Protestant spectrum. so very ecumenical in that way, and I worked a lot with Catholics and Orthodox too. so
1: yeah, well, we are very Catholic with a little C here, so uh, I, I feel great uh, fraternal kinship with all with all Christians. Um, my wife is a Protestant so I've been to quite mm-hmm. a few Protestant churches over the over the decades. And I just want to say that uh, this book has a, a lot of Catholic, a lot of catholic contribution contributions uh john paul mm-hmm. ii most most strikingly but also a number of authors and writers i also love uh victor frankel and man's search for meaning and how mm-hmm. how much um how much meaning he found in his suffering and the freedom that he found in his suffering to bear his cross even though of course he was jewish and um mm-hmm. this is something that unites all abrahamic peoples and yes. you include a lot of eastern people too uh, so perhaps all all of god's children i found the contrast of faith, hope, and love that that we know from Saint Paul, and that uh, we, we Catholics pray in the glorious mysteries of the Rosary twice a week, mm. uh, that you contrast with with their um, opposites: the opposite of faith is cynicism, the opposite of hope is pessimism, and the opposite of love is narcissism. And I, I never thought of that in terms in those terms before. We, we know things by their fruits, but can also know them by their opposites. Are these the uh, watchwords of our age? Uh, cynicism, pessimism, narcissism, what's your diagnosis? Uh,
0: thank you, thank you, Chris. Uh, I don't want to state that it's an exhaustive portrayal in terms of the opposites. Uh, they could very well be. I haven't done statistical analysis, sociological, or what have you to, to discern that. But I, I would say that I think a hallmark in a negative way of our age is cynicism. I think cynicism in a variety of contexts um, certainly comes into play. And, you know, faith, while it's not discounting realism or depravity, it's never locked in in that way, bound up with the other two virtues here or cardinal virtues or whatever you want to call them with hope and love, love always trust, love always hopes. Um, you know, and so I think faith is connected to the other two, uh, values, if I can call them values as well of hope and love, but cynicism, uh, you know, discounting others, not having trust in any way, shape or form, uh, I think is a real problem, a, a discounting, a discarding, mm-hmm. uh, a disregarding. Uh, I, th- I think we see that in so many contexts, whether it's toward the church or toward religion, toward politics, uh, and it's not to say that there isn't a place for critique. I mean, I think we need robust critique, but um, th- th- there there is a sense in which uh, we should never reduce anyone and always, again, take hope, which, again, in contrast to pessimism, uh, I think there's always the sense for the Christian, while being realistic, uh, that hope uh, is resilient. And it's it's not because for us... That it's grounded in my faith or my hope as i seek to do in this there's a vertical and a horizontal dimension it's god is the object of our faith as divine subject and god is our hope our eschatological or our future hope in the present even and then also uh embodiment love and embodied love that christ is the embodiment of the divine love uh and that is shall we say internalized through the mm-hmm. indwelling work of the spirit in the life of the church so you know, again, narcissism—the uh, the the kind of self-absorption—certainly comes into play in so many contexts, and so that's why I was trying to contrast. I see these as omnipresent, shall we say, but our God is our 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 object of hope, as the divine subject, as the ground of our faith, and is uh, the triune love. Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, and the Spirit is the one who binds us. Love in that Augustinian uh, stream of thought.
1: Yeah, and how relational our faith is with our creator. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like you say, we are of infinite value and um, um, complexity. uh, Mm -hmm. That God should know us knit in the wound, that he should see us as we are being formed, and uh, that not a hair turns white or black. Yeah. I want to ask you about the title, Throwaway Culture. That's something Pope Francis says often. I should tell our listeners, um, I'm sure if they can click on the show notes they'll see your cover because uh, we're part of the new Books Network so they can uh, see the cover it is uh it's sort of like stencil people kind of plastic people and it looks to me like you know one of those plastic models we used to make as children so yes. here's a tank here's an airplane what is a throwaway culture what are the what are the people on your cover
0: right so I, I thought it was a brilliant cover by one of the artists at yeah, uh I agree. University press. And really, what they were getting at there was uh, the the problematic aspect of what I'm engaging. It, they, it wasn't so much about uh, the solution, but the problem. And then I think the green represents life. So, you know, uh, human flourishing, like, so there is the contrast there between the problem and the solution. But it is like that stencil or that kind of uh, cutout for a, a model. You know, we had it with airplane sets and other kinds of sets, but you have these two. Um, plastic figures, a man and a woman. And then you have uh, on the cover to the right of them, if you're looking at the cover, you have different tools or different uses, different things we do. And those are also cut out. So you can change the parts. And it ends up really being as my granddaughter, who I dedicated the book to, um, uh, along with uh, a medical ethicist who's a personalist, my granddaughter, is a six year old, understood quite clearly, just looking at the cover, yeah, that we're not gadgets. We're not gadgets. So, uh, you know, that there's a simplicity to the cover design that I think really uh, captures a key aspect. And so that we're we're often reduced to what we do, the tasks we perform. uh, Are we useful? Uh, And so, you know, you have a keyboard, you have a triangle, you have a fire extinguisher, you have all kinds of things. And it's like, you know, with the hands attached, so you just t- attach the hands and you just uh, detach the hands, so to speak, uh, to these stick figures. And I uh, thought that was quite fascinating. But what I'm really getting at there, that the cover is trying to illustrate, is that we are often reduced to being cogs in a machine. And that uh, throwaway culture, as Pope Francis talked about, in, in, the, in the context of abortion, I think that can be extended beyond that, to the commodification of human identity more broadly, which he's also concerned about. So human identity and, and life, uh, creation itself, like in one of his encyclicals, that, you know, uh, we must not look at the creation as a commodity either. There's a sacredness to all of life. And so, you know, we, we tend to do this even with God. We, we can reduce God to God's works. But I love how in Christian faith and Christian theology, we talk about the person of Christ, for example, and the work of Christ. And we dare not ever reduce reduce Christ to his work. Um, Christ, the Father, Son, and Spirit are all irreducible to their work. They're in their work, but they're never reduced to their work. And we should never look at salvation. God is a means to an end of gaining salvation. God is our salvation. So I think we commodify God. I think we turn Jesus into slot machine Jesus. And I think that the the reductionism in our society shows up in reducing people to what they wear, what they own. Uh, it, it can be reducing us to our genetic makeup our our biological makeup, our racial and gendered makeup, all of which are important. But we're always as persons more than that we're in that. But we must never be reduced to anti, any one aspect of our identity. And, and that's the key thrust to me, um, because dignity is inherent to our personhood. It's not bound up with the size of our brain. Or our brain power, our, our bank account, et cetera. And I think that's a Christian value that great Christian leaders like Pope Francis are very concerned for, and Pope John Paul II and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.
1: Yeah, no, a- a- amen. And the great irony for me you know, you and I are both teachers. I, I teach at a secondary school, but I'm also occasionally a, a lecturer at some colleges here. Yeah. Uh, i find it more with the younger kids that they don't have a high value of the human in relationship and often some of the kids feel like they're a plague upon the planet some of them are you know yeah. reluctant to have children themselves so it's really weird that as our material advances just skyrocket there's a spiritual poverty that we're yeah. facing at least in the secular world um and then this has happened before and you know obviously the nazis were from this extremely advanced culture of the 19th century with its philosophy and its music and this and that. But I could say the same thing about the decadent Romans or even the Tower Mm -hmm. of Babel. So what's the trap of worshiping what we create? uh, And how do we get out? And I I think, I can't, I don't remember exactly, but I think you, you wrote something that at the Tower of Babel, the bricks had become more valuable than the, than the builders. There's a line like that, I think.
0: That's correct, yeah. uh, Chris. And so I was fascinated by that when I was thinking through rabbinic literature and archaeological data. And uh, you know, one of the reports or one of the studies I came upon was that somehow in the in the literature, it was discerned that for the, the Tower of Babel, uh, you know, again, they're trying to make a name for themselves. And it's those in power ultimately trying to make a name for themselves uh and uh you know and god doesn't want that it's not that god's trying to crush the party they're crushing their own human identity mm-hmm. by doing so that's the irony but they're seeking to make a name for themselves they build this tower but it's on the backs of uh the bricklayers and such and so uh one study i read talked about how They grieve more over a brick that would fall and break than Mm. someone whose back was broken by carrying the weight of this load as the tower is built. And so uh, that really is at the heart of what God's after. You know, people so easily think, oh, the God, just a a glory grabbing deity. Not at all. Uh, The very next chapter. God says, I'm going to call Abram and I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to make your name great in relation, in covenant relation. Same thing with Pharaoh, you know, with uh, who is the Lord? And Lord wasn't simply a title. That's God's personal name in covenant, Exodus 3, Exodus 4. Who is the Lord that I should let Israel go? And, you know, he looked at them most likely as just, you know, a nameless people. And deities were to be mixed and matched. And, you know, Pharaoh was a descendant or a god, descendant of the gods or a god uh, himself. And it's interesting how the Exodus uh, narrative plays out. Uh, The rabbis talk about how, notice that Pharaoh's never a name in in that context, nor Pharaoh's daughter, but Israel is given a name. And as Kendall Solon talks about it, you know, a nameless deity and a nameless people cannot be commodified, but a name people and a name deity, A named people and a named deity cannot be commodified. A named, a nameless people and a nameless deity can easily be commodified, and that's what Pharaoh is seeking to do. But God is going to make Israel's name great, and we bear the name of the triumphant God in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go uh, and make disciples, or as you're going, make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the divine name. So I just love how Scripture builds on that named identity. The name it means that we belong to God, and it's it's a it's a personalist thrust right there you know, it's, it's important that we name people and know them by name. So uh, in answer to the question that you had asked about, like, how do we guard against worshiping the creation or worshiping our creations? Uh, I think Augustine is someone who says it so beautifully and profoundly uh, in his uh, discussion. I believe it's even in the morals of the Catholic uh, religion or church. He talks about this uh this thrust of the tortured soul the cheated soul the diseased soul and the blessed soul and i don't know if you want me to unpack that a bit chris if that Please, would be yeah. helpful I do, I do allude to that in um yes yeah, the of the morals of the uh, of the catholic church uh he talks about the tor- tortured soul and you know augustine never separated out systematic theology from spiritual theology they were always one for him he's a theologian of the heart and uh as brilliant as he was and so he talks about the tortured soul as the individual who sees the good uh the 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 blessed life um but is in a sense behind bars and cannot reach out and and gain uh gain a hold of that it's kind of like johnny cash's uh Folsom Prison Blues, where you know I shot a man in Rito just oh, yeah. to watch him die. And I hear that train car going by. People are in there, rich people are in there drinking and smoking and eating and having a great time, but I can't be there. I'm here prison in prison for life. And so he's a tortured soul. And Augustine was maybe a tortured soul, uh, before really experiencing the triune God of the fullness. You know, give me chastity, but not yet, is famous slime. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then also the cheated soul is the person who thinks they have the good. But they're cheating themselves they don't have the good uh they they have an imposture. what they worship uh could be sex drugs and rock and roll it could be all kinds of things one's career but they think that's the good the ultimate good uh, which for augustine is the triune god but they they're cheating themselves Or the disease soul the person who actually does have the good in this case again for augustine the triune god um but but is always looking elsewhere because the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence and and each one of those is missing out but the blessed soul is the one who sees the good knows the good in this case god and experience and the rich young ruler was one who's maybe a tortured soul cheated soul diseased soul i don't know the rich young ruler in matthew 19 that he went away from christ because he had great wealth and you know whether he was tortured or cheated and the disciples say, Lord, what about us? Peter says, We've left everything to follow you. Uh, or it's the person with uh, who is uh, who finds the pearl of great price, sells everything to experience. And Jesus says, That's not a foolish person. The, the foolish person is the one who you know stores up for things, s- stores up things on this earth for themselves where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But the person who is wise stores up for themselves not the things that break or rust. Um, but uh, is imperishable, namely life with God. And so I think Augustine gets us to to do a spiritual inventory, so to speak, about am I the tortured soul, cheated soul, diseased soul, or am I the blessed soul? And then he goes on in the confessions, if I could just quote, Please. when he finally does come to this point of realizing uh, who God is, and I'm just going to quote this because I think, you know, it's, we have competing affections, competing goods all the time that we're, um, you know, wrestling over like what is, what is worth investing in, um, and I think so often we invest poorly. We choose poorly, and Augustine's saying, choose wisely, like in the Rakers of the Lost Art. Choose yes. wisely. Uh, Later, I love thee. He finally realizes this, and he writes about this in the Confessions. And I'll quote: Later, I love thee, O beauty so ancient and so new. Later, I love thee, mm. for behold, thou, God, wert within me, and I outside, and I sought thee outside. And my unloveliness fell upon those lovely things that thou hast made. Thou art with me, and I was not with thee. I was kept from thee by those things. Yet had they not been in thee, they would not have been at all. Thou didst hmm. call and cry to me, and break open my deafness. And thou didst send forth thy beams, and shine upon me, and chase away my blindness. Thou didst breathe fragrance upon me, and I drew in my breath, and do now pan for thee. I tasted thee, and now hunger and thirst for thee. Thou didst touch me. And I have burned for thy peace. And, you know, C.S. Lewis in an Augustinian Mm -hmm. vein and weight of glory talks about, you know, we settle for building mud pies when God calls us to a holiday at sea. I mean, how foolish can we be? So Augustine says, you know, here, it's not that the beauty of this creation or of our own works doesn't have value. God's in those things, but we need to kick it up a notch, so to speak, or degree and say to, to gaze upon God, that God is the source. So God was with me, but I wasn't with God. God is in these things. God is in sexual expression. God is in uh, the creation of art, in the environment. God is in our works, whatever we create, you know, whether we're writing or playing music or whatever. But to worship those things misses out on the fullness. So we're cheapening even those beautiful things by fixating on them rather than fixing our eyes upon God through those matters. And that's what Augustine comes to realize. And I think he's such a great apologist for the affections and what ultimately our values must be if we're to flourish as humans.
1: But you said so much. Uh, and there's... A, you just said so many things. Um, I think the Lord uh, make me chaste, but not yet, is sort of a desire to consume people right as Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. uh, just because we can take someone and discard them that way or choose wisely like uh, it's the it's not raiders it's the third one it's uh um last crusade and 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 they fall for the trap like you're looking for a a shiny cup you're looking for the jeweled cup this is not the cup of a carpenter but the lesson you're you're telling us is every every cup or everybody you know if you can see the value in something made of wood or of clay how liberating would that be you wouldn't have to climb over all these people to get yours or to advance up the ladder um Mm -hmm. and for one thing what you're telling us is that we are already free and that there you know we can be liberated from all these anxieties of did i get enough or did i get the right one or am i good enough or sharp enough or do i have enough stuff or you know as we as we um amass things in barns where uh, moths can eat and th- thieves can steal. It can be anything. It can be sex. It can be money. It can be piety like the older brother mm-hmm. in the um, prodigal son. And yes. are we good enough as, as in our own bodies? And it doesn't just have to be, is my body beautiful and youthful and strong? And do I have the right diet and, and the right physique? Mm-hmm. But it could also be genetic Uh, you, you refer to Gattaca in the movie, and that's a movie I watched for the first time a couple of months ago. And those people are not happy. The people in Gattaca are just, you know, they're trying to be good enough and there's such anxiety and sneakiness and, and backstabbing and, uh, climbing around. So this is just a new way of seeing, I think is you also got me to watch interstellar for the first time, which I watched last week while reading your book, which I enjoyed, um, profoundly where they also have the uh the problem of figuring out who gets to leave and who has to stay and yes um i know there's a question here i, I feel like i just talked for two minutes but no, no, there's a, the the what you are telling us is if you are childlike and humble you will it's going to be liberating and uh some of the most powerful parts are where you talk about the happiness that people with down syndrome have or mm-hmm. peter singer's mother the philosopher who who uh i'd like you to tell about that and especially um with the beautiful and powerful part about your son and his caretakers i'd like to ask you about how humility and reliance on on god places us in correct relationship with the created world and frees us from all these anxieties
0: Uh, thank you so much chris so um you know i was i was struck by the fact in the in the chapter on abortion and disability I, i wanted to focus my energies in a particular vein And I was struck by, you know, a Twitter discussion, shall we say, between Richard Dawkins, one of the famed new atheists, and someone who was asking him a question, you know, and the question was, if you had a Down syndrome fetus, would you abort? You know, if you and your mate had a Down syndrome fetus, fetus, would you abort? And he said yes, because they couldn't live a pleasurable life. And he didn't realize, uh, one, that it went out to all of his Twitter followers and hers which is vast when you think of his twitter feed uh and he didn't mean it to come across so callous and so i'm not i'm not looking to dis uh to discredit dawkins i i feel like uh charity is required in all these matters of you know to engage constructively critically yes but constructively and so he's an easy target for many christians um and i i think that we need to be held to higher ground in terms of how we engage so I try and enter into his particular utilitarian ethic. He talks about himself being more of a utilitarian ethicist of a kind, you know, and how I'm going to define that is in terms of the pleasure principle, you know, whether it's the greatest amount of pleasure for the greatest number of people, John Stuart Mill, or just the greatest amount of pleasure for the individual, dot dot dot, you know, I'm not sure quite where Dawkins places himself, but he does say he's he's operating from that pleasure principle and he would argue that You know, a Down syndrome fetus or Down syndrome person or individual, or he's going to define that individual, uh, can never experience a pleasurable life. So I thought, well, I'm going to look at science to see what's. I'm going to try and operate within his pleasure calculus and see if it can even be accounted for that that's incorrect um, from the vantage point of how he himself is operating. I'm trying to enter into his argument. And I try and do that in my entangled ethical inquiry. And I say, well, the studies show... Often, at least with Down syndrome, call it a disability, call it what do you want, an alternative ability? You know, there's debates on what kind of language to use. I said that, you know, the disability paradox, the Down syndrome advantage that many times the statistics show that with Down syndrome, at least, that the Down syndrome person or the person with Down syndrome has a more meaningful quality of life, a happier quality of life than the general populace, and their families feel um Blessed in the context of those relationships. The gym where I go, uh, there's this brother. Uh, these two brothers. One has Down syndrome. I see them walking down the street. I see them on a a, a dual bike. Uh, they seem to be the happiest people at the gym, you know. And uh, you know that one of them is Down syndrome. The other one uh, does not have Down syndrome. But I just feel that they flourish. I always admire them. And the studies show that. And that doesn't say that about all other disabilities or alternative abilities. Again, whatever language one wants to use. But it's it's striking with Down syndrome that, again, why should a Oxford don uh, be able to determine, or discern, or judge who can have a pleasurable life or not? And uh, there are all kinds of factors that I consider beyond that. Uh, I think let's look at the individual themselves. Did they feel that their life is full of meaning and purpose? Uh, we shouldn't be judging them. Uh, same thing with my son. I have to always ask myself in his. Uh, catastrophic brain-injured state, what is Christopher experiencing presently, not me projecting onto him uh, his suffering, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, we we often assume uh, certain things about what a meaningful quality of life is, and it's usually bound up with certain capacities. And I think that falls far short of how the Lord looks at matters, even with the matter of, in the case of children they might have all the capacities in development but they were seen as half human in jesus day and he says let the little children come unto me he he was the one who honored their full personhood and i think there's so much to be said for the upside down kingdom of jesus every day of the week
1: because ultimately well this is uh what christopher reeve said at the 1996 mm. democratic convention when he was already paralyzed and he said mm-hmm. you know, he was i forgot who the he was speaking against but he was you know talking about family values and uh, his political opponents were talking about family values. And he said, well, I think we're all a family and we all have value. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and exact. it was such a sweet line. Yes, it um, is. And he, uh, that's something that, you know, by trying to purify the race Nazis or the geneticists in, in Gattaca, mm. it, they create a little, they create a hell on, on, yes. and uh, a person with Down syndrome is, is, walking around free of all, all of that. Um, that's the opposite of people as as tools, as means, or as uh, something that they have achieved. And you talk about as people, as ends. Uh, and you, you say that first at the beginning, and then talking about the Dalai Lama. Would you like to comment on that?
0: I, I thought it was striking that the Dalai Lama weighs in on uh, genetic engineering and the like out of great concern. And I, in my entangled ethical work, I am uh, seeking to engage a variety of traditions. Of course, my ultimate filter is scripture, the Christian tradition, uh, the church, etc. But I think that there is truth out there to consider uh, and to look for friends wherever we might find them, because uh, you know it's heavy sledding, so to speak, on these matters today, where so much of life which we deem sacred is seen as profane, to play off Eliada's language, but it's seen as as profane. And the Dalai Lama, from a very different tradition, of course, Tibetan Buddhism, sees life as sacred. I think, well, let's look to the Dalai Lama, what he has to say in the universe in a single atom. And I think he has a profound exchange to offer on certain matters like it can set up a major conflict between those who are genetically engineered and advanced And those who are not we can have two classes of uh races uh and it's usually going to go to the haves versus the have-nots uh you know basically from a buddhist perspective he's dealing with the grasping state of life you know we might not talk about in terms of grasping uh but that matter of living life with an open hand and he's just very concerned that uh it's actually going to be reductionistic and that's what i'm concerned for uh in the book and as you know from gattaca the couple, um, Uma Thurman, by the way, whose father is a leading uh, Buddhist uh, scholar in the States, uh, but Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke's characters, they fall in love. She is seen as uh because she belongs to a higher class of genetically advanced people. And he's seen as degenerate, so to speak, because he doesn't quite meet, meet uh, the, uh, the level of um, capacity that's required to to advance but they fall in love and love is never bound up with those kinds of uh quotas rational quotas and the like uh, there's so much more and you know it's emmanuel Kant who says we must never treat uh any individual as a mere means but as an end of themselves so we benefit one another we we do become means to one another in our interactions transactions but we shouldn't be about transactionalism so to speak that people individual persons are always more than mere means but ends in themselves and i believe he gets that from his judeo-christian heritage whether he thinks he does or not his parents were lutheran pietists and i think he gets it from them so uh, you know but I, I think he makes a profound point in his categorical imperative
1: yeah and uh, somebody asked the Dalai Lama who's you know he's getting up there in years what's yeah. you know are you anxious about your death and he says of course not it's it's a change of clothes was uh was his response about yeah. about that and I reading your book I feel like it's all clothes your DNA is clothes your yeah. SAT score is closed your bank account is clothes uh none of this is I mean we're garbed in it I mean, we're wearing it uh and you know we we don't believe that we are like you said we believe that we are uh How did you say it, where we are both body and soul together? How did you say
0: that? Yeah, embodied souls, uh, souls. souls, bodies uh, that, you know, there is an uh, indispensability to it because we are going to be raised immortal from the vantage point of Christian orthodoxy. Uh, Christ is embodied, I believe, for all eternity, and and we will be embodied, raised immortal, as uh, the great Pauline texts uh, indicate. That said, uh, at present, we are mortal. Uh, but C.S. Lewis in Way of Glory talks about you've never met a mere mortal. Every individual we've met is an immortal being. And then he he riffs off that to develop further where we need to go as humans in our interactions with one another.
1: Yeah. And you have a really interesting chapter ab- about sex that begins with there is nothing casual about casual sex. And I wonder if all the things that uh, you know people who are interested in casual sex, including the early... Uh, Saint Augustine, back when he didn't want to be chased, it they're they're really interested in in the garments of other people, not their not their soul. You you write a bit about polyamory and and all kinds of things like that. What's what's our problem with sex in in the twenty first century, and what's the correct way to uh, correct our view? Yeah, so uh,
0: it, it was striking to me that in doing my research how polygamy uh, may be on the rise in certain contexts, polyamory, many loves. So let's say a man with several women or a woman uh, with several men uh, maybe live together, or it could be more diverse than that even. Uh, But I was really dealing with monogamy and calling for monogamy and that sexual expression should be framed in the context and exclusively in the context of Uh, And I'm talking about sexual intercourse in the context of monogamy. Um, And uh, I develop it from a variety of angles, Uh, certainly, you know, casual sex. There's nothing casual about it because everything we do in our body is connected to our our souls. And so it leaves an imprint. Uh, It leaves an indelible imprint, so to speak, uh, upon us. And so there's nothing casual about it. Uh, And with polyamory or polygamy, et cetera, et cetera, I, I say that it's 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 not ultimately going to be satisfying from a personalist vantage point because there's a sense in which we're not honoring the person we're treating people as mere means, to the end of sexual um, expression. I mean, again, it requires more nuance than we can get into here because those are in polyamorous relationships. will say, well, that they are honoring the persons there. And I say, well, I don't think that one can really go as far as one thinks one can go in honoring the person. So and I and I it's interesting. I draw from Emmanuel Kant. I don't know how far you want me to go into this, but I found he made some really interesting points on this. That with monogamy, you know, you're responsible for cherishing and nurturing the other person, uh, and you know what's entailed in nurturing the other party. Uh, certainly, uh, engaging with when, with one's offspring and and nurturing them. Uh, in polyamorous relationships, it gets more complex. Like whose offspring is this and and such and how do I really truly nurture this other uh individual person and and the on and on it goes with the complexities where I think that at the end of the day even if the intent is there to honor and cherish the other person I think monogamy makes the best sense of it so you know I argue for that biblically theologically uh, but also in terms of uh, philosophy and uh, other other domains as I proceed.
1: Yeah, and since we believe that everything is relational, cl- including the the Holy Trinity, I think a a family is the closest approximation that we can make here on Earth. And so, uh, absolutely, yeah. And so, as so, that's a
0: problem we have, the problem. Especially the church family. Especially the church family, right? Because, you know, I think for the singles in our churches, or the divorcees, or the widows or the widowers, uh, it's so easily if we not that we shouldn't honor the nuclear family. Of course, we should and cherish the nuclear family. But as the church, we are an extended family in a way so that even for the, the, the widow, the widower, the single, uh, the divorcee, that they have a place in, in the, the bride of Christ. Uh, Christ is our, our bridegroom and we are a family. And I think that's part of the beauty of the Christian faith is the church as the family of God.
1: Yeah, and that's not because of somebody else's generosity, but because of their inherent value. They're exactly. Inherent. Uh, I think that takes us back to the throwaway culture, because as you know, as we're all going to get older, um, and John Paul II, who suffered so long in dignity as his body was increasingly decrepit, or mm-hmm. you know, the an older person whose mind might not be all there anymore, or you know, somebody like your son who was injured in a um, in the catastrophic accident. Uh, how do you think of, how do you think we can, I'm not sure what my question is. Um, what's the correct way to, to wait upon the Lord, you know, as, uh, when we're in our diminished conditions, as, as we're all getting older, right? Everything's a little harder each morning.
0: Well, you know, I think, uh, always looking for signs of life, uh, signs of God's goodness, in the midst of it, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, you think about such things. So, you know, as one ages, uh, I think one can cherish more the memories uh, that one has. So I think about uh, reflecting on my mom who's passed away. Um, she's now isn't, I'm aging. Uh, I I, think is powerful now, of course, Alzheimer's and such. You know, what about the loss of memory? You know, one can think about that, but there's also the collective memory of others, even helping, so to speak, the person who has lost uh, much of their memory and their remembrance of that individual. So I think always looking for the good in the midst of the the struggles. So when I'm at my son's bedside in his care facility, I really find that's the temple of God for me, being at his mm-hmm. bedside. It's, it's a divine mystery to me you know, we're looking for signs of conscious control daily. I always ask the caregivers in one way or another, do you, have you seen signs of conscious control? He's minimally conscious, but I'm always looking for more, but also celebrating the fact that my son is present to me and I am present to my son. Uh, You know, I see the pictures behind you of the brain. And I think about how much of the, 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 especially on the right side of his brain is no longer viable and seeing the MRIs. And yet, there are viable parts and there is the hope with neuroplasticity. And while the situation is grim and the probabilities are slim for meaningful recovery, the po- possibilities are real. And to say, as this medical ethicist Dr. Robert Potter said to us, Christopher is a new creation. He's different, but he's the same Christian. I'm always looking for how is God at work in Christopher today? What is God doing in this new creation? day? So I think it's not a mental gymnastics type of exercise, but it's it's taking and cherishing and giving thanks in the midst of great pain and agony and travel to say the least i'm, I'm not trying to you know make up for something or just live uh and create window dressing no I, I think this is uh as we talked earlier a realistic hope i want to operate with the pain and the suffering but also find hope in the midst of it like in a great dickens novel he dealt with both the joys and the sorrows uh it was the best of times and the worst of times. And that's not just in Taylor Two Cities, it's everywhere in Dickens' thought. And I think to live with that and to see the good in the midst of the evil and to see that Christ is present with my son. And what does Christ bring uh into a care facility um, as he walks those halls? Um and he walks any in his bedside with my son. So that's just some of my own musings that I think through every day of the week for the last two and a half plus years.
1: Yeah, and and as you write, we are all on life support in one way or another, right? We're yeah. we're all passing through to eternity, and uh, maybe it's easier as we get older to think in these terms because our faculties are leaving us one by one, kind of like the person clinging to a branch. At first, you lose one finger, then you lose another finger, then eventually yeah. you're going to fall yes. out of this yes. fall out of this tree. Uh, so, and I think also your uh, metaphor of the prisoner, who's you know Johnny Cash, who can he, he can imagine the people in the fancy dining cars and drinking cups of coffee and smoking cigars. I I was uh, visiting Alcatraz and when Mm. the wind is just right, you can hear the clinking of glasses at Ghirardelli square and you're sitting there in your jail cell and you're, you know, so um, Mm. something about our faith knocks down the walls and there's, uh, there's freedom. Yes. Uh, So, You call you call that rediscovering persons, and I think we can do that in our daily relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know we, we've got like a little less. Yeah, we. Oh no, we have we have a few more minutes. But uh, do you want? You also have a whole section about how you'd like to apply these ethics to the real world problems before us, and and you talk about. Um, immigration policy and welcoming the stranger, you talk about uh, the correct way to have a free market economy, you talk about uh, war and especially the kind of war which is distant uh, and like drone strikes and the problems that that causes for us who are so advanced but are no longer looking into the eyes of the people we are uh, killing. You have so many applications and you even have one about uh, space travel and and the future as we as, as we approach the next frontier. What do you think, how do you think we should be thinking about this? How do you think we should be going forward um, socially? And I imagine that's what New Wineskins is about.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's to to see that uh, that we don't minimize people's identity in, in the world, God's creation, but to maximize uh, toward human flourishing. So that would involve environmental uh, considerations as well, because there's a chapter devoted to that. So yes, I'm applying this kind of personalist, Trinitarian personalist philosophy of life to abortion, to uh, uh, matters of genetic engineering, to sexual expression, to genetic engineering, or to gender rather, end of life care, and then race relations to matters of immigration reform, as you said, to drone warfare, to creation care, and then lastly, space exploration, the last ethical frontier. And so, I'll just take up space exploration if you don't mm-hmm. mind for a minute and I, and yeah. I uh, in the, the readers guide that's uh, available as a free download I I do this as a heuristic device as a case study so to students I'll ask them so if you'd only send 100 people up into space who would that be who would that who would that include and and I ask them to think carefully because you know with Elon Musk and and some of the others who are just moving so much toward space exploration I'm, I'm all for space exploration. i'm not against space exploration at all but i think it's where's our confidence and our hope like stephen hawking uh the late stephen hawking and uh currently elon musk and others it's almost like it's the alternative uh eschatology or afterlife it's it's like the secular man's uh heaven and i think what's that heaven going to look like if only 100 people go is it going to be the goring uh geckos of this world that read is good is it going to be only the wealthy well statistics show that usually the poor are more generous than the wealthy and uh if if we're only sending off to space those who have certain capacities that haven't had to be challenged as much in this life and those with wealth compassion the compassion muscle to use michael sandel's language you know if you don't use it you lose it almost in an aristotelian vein of um habituation like but if you don't use it you lose it well, these people haven't really had to exercise it all that much. So if we don't have people with disabilities, if we don't have people who might be able to navigate with resilience, life at large, more profoundly than we can here, uh, because they've had to live with that throughout their existence, you know, we'd be at a, be, be at a great loss without them. So it's a really, it's a, it's a checklist for what we value. And I say, hopefully you're gonna have out of 100, several people with disabilities, you're going to have the poor, you're not just going to have the intellectual elite and the rich on that uh, spacecraft. And I I find that that helps us to revisit all the issues in the book in many respects, because eschatology, and it's secular man's eschatology, uh, I'm saying in and of itself causes to reflect further. And eschatology should always cause us the study of the last things, the future, bringing the future to the present, should cause us to reevaluate what we're really about, because we're all on our way to the end, as Keith Richards, who we started out with, said, you know, no one wants to die young, but no one wants to get old either, he said. You know, that's quite the conundrum. And so, you know, we need to be measured in our thinking, because we do have to have our houses in order, and we will have to give an account to God at some point.
1: Well, I found that whole chapter both whimsical and wise, uh, and a great way to uh, come full circle. Um, So, I'm afraid we have to go because my students are going to come knocking on this door in a few minutes. Uh, so thank you so much for for talking with me today. And thank you especially for this lovely book that's that was just a delight to read. Uh, well, thank I-
0: you so much, Chris. And it's a blessing to be with you. I love your generosity of spirit and uh, your, your winsome thoughtfulness, uh, wisdom and such. So thank you. It's been a privilege and blessings to you, your students. And would you, uh, uh, would you close with a prayer or? or yes, a blessing I'd be honored to. I'd be honored to, Lord. I just I thank you for the words of C.S. Lewis that we've never met a mere mortal. Mm-hmm. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would see people, um, as um, to, 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 to frame it perhaps a little differently that they're, we're all weighted with glory, that weight of glory, and that Lord, we, we must not cheapen one another. I pray that we would see. Them with your eyes whoever we're engaging with not to engage in road rage or shut people out just because we don't agree with them politically or ideologically or whatever way but to see things from your vantage point lord have mercy we used to look at christ from a merely human point of view and now we look at no one that way paul says give us your eyes to see and to treat people as more than things in our world as more than things lord bless chris bless those in his community uh, lead us forward, Lord, in Christ in Jesus' name. Through your spirit, amen. Amen. Nails, spear, shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you,
1: and hail. Chris Odinitz and Paul Lewis Metzger recorded this conversation, Episode 72, on September 5th, 2023. That's the feast day of Saint Teresa of Calcutta, founder of the Missionaries of Charity, who showed God's love to the poor and the dying in Calcutta. She was born in Albania in 1910, then part of the Ottoman Empire, and she died in 1997 in India at the age of 87 and was canonized by Pope Francis in 2016. I visited her community in 2004 when I was a tourist in India and I spent Easter there with the sisters and it was for me a very beautiful experience. Our music is from Josh and Margo of the Great Space Coaster Band. Check out their website at www.gscoasterband.com. You can also see their performances if you're in Northern California, which are all listed there. And our image, the logo of the dog, is from a stained glass window at the monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican friars of England, Scotland and Wales from their website, www.english.op.org I'm Chris Rodinitz Thank you for listening Talk to you next time You can always email me at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com God bless you all
0: This, this is Christ the King Whom shepherds, God and angels sing